BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Marshall podcast. We're kind of you're coming down to the, you know, the final weeks before the midterm election. We're inside 30 days. What is it about three weeks? I guess three weeks, um, a little more than three weeks, three and a half weeks, something like that. So we're right there. And um, as often is the case, there's a lot of fog of war um, in the final weeks before an election. Um, a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of things happening at once, and it's hard to it's hard to know what the storyline is, for lack of a better word. One thing that happens in an election cycle, especially a midterm election cycle, where you know there's there's not a presidential campaign, which which brings in more of the country into the political uh, you know the political conversation, the political antics, um, and stuff like that. Uh, especially these days, when they're when when each presidential election seems so, um, you know, consequential and so high stakes and everything like that. But one thing that happens in a midterm election is that, you know, for people like Kate and I, and uh, probably people like you who are kind of very into politics and follow it closely, that for us, you know, the campaign's been going on, you know, in some sense, been going on for two years, but it's been going on in earnest for you know, three, four months, something like that. We know who the candidates are. Uh, we know the basic outlines of what races are competitive and stuff like that. But for a lot of the public, um, it only starts right now, or I guess more specifically, um, for the people whose decision making it will come down to, the election is only starting to come into focus now. And so what that means is that um, you can have a race that has, you know, seemed one way, and then in the last few weeks, it it moves in one direction or the other, and um, that doesn't mean exactly that that something has changed. It can mean that the people who, you know, the five ten percent of the electorate who are not locked into place with one party coalition or another are finally paying attention. And we're getting a hint in the polls of what they, you know, what they think. Now, I think there has been a general consensus, uh, right or wrong, that in the last, you know, over the last few weeks, there has been at least an ebbing of the movement in the Democrats' direction. And how much that is is a, is another question but at least that kind of whenever you know when everything in in the wake of Dobbs seemed to be moving in the Democrats direction that that seemed to end and it was moving back in the Republicans direction i think it's clear some level of that has happened but i think in general we're still in that kind of situation where we don't we don't know exactly it's very it's very unclear. There are a lot of, you know, thinking about the Senate, which is the battle that is easier to get your head around since there's, you know, at most maybe 10 competitive races and there's, you know, maybe five or six that are really competitive. Uh, in those, you know, there's a, a ton of races that are that are, you know, basically neck and neck and can go either way. Um so, uh, the, you know, the big news, of, or you know, the most, the most um, over the top and crazy news over the last week or so has been the stuff about Herschel Walker. The sort of the wild thing about that race is that it has been kind of acknowledged and understood for a while that he has been 
violent with his family members, has had multiple out of wedlock children that he does not support or, you know, doesn't acknowledge or whatever, threatened to kill his family. And then we had this story about one of his girlfriends. He pressured her to get an abortion. She did get an abortion and then he paid for the abortion. And then and I think this isn't maybe maybe uh, my co-host Kate Regal will, will will have more of a sense of this. I think that it was actually in reaction to that story, which I think has been out for about a week or so, um, that Walker's son, Herschel Walker's son, who's something like in his early 20s, something like that, who is himself like a conservative online guy uh, and who had... I don't know, made one or two appearances on behalf of his father during this campaign, went on Twitter and totally unloaded on him as a a violent liar and a hypocrite and just, you know, totally went off. Um, and, you know, in political terms, that's an admission against interest, right? I mean, not only is this guy his son, but he's not like an estranged son, right? He's not like sometimes, well, you say, all right, they've obviously had issues and whatever. This is someone who, who the campaign had been putting forward as kind of a surrogate on, on the candidate's behalf. So all that happened. And, and of course, uh, Republicans nationwide kind of looked at it aghast for about an hour and a half and then decided, okay, not ideal, but we can work with this. Let's do it. Let's push ahead. Let's, this is still awesome. You know, go Herschel. Um, and all the complaints about, well, uh, I don't know. I can't even, <laughs> can't even, can't even uh, think what they've been. But, you know, the other side does it. And uh, they were mean to Mitt Romney. And, um, you know, what about forgiveness? And blah, 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 blah. And so, and so uh, that's kind of where we've been. Um, in the in the sort of the you know wild end of this cycle, we're going to get into that all the sort of all the sort of the craziness. I mean, in some cases, literally the craziness that has witnessed the the closing weeks of the 2022 uh, midterm. Before we get to that, let me remind you that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Attention, year rounders. Temperatures are dropping, leaves are falling, and the sun is setting halfway through your lunch break. But for everyone on Team Cold Brew, it's still ice coffee season. If you're a proud year-rounder, it's time to put on your flannel, flannels, fill your tumbler with ice, and top it off with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew. With regular and decaf options, you can finally enjoy velvety smooth cold brew all day, every day, even in the depths of winter. Ready to savor every shiver? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, so... uh Kay, what do you what do you what do we make of the Walker thing? What's up? It's kind of funny because the first story that came out about the abortion stuff that was from the Daily Beast. It was funny because it was the nicest thing I had learned about Walker to that point. It was the thing that made me like him best because the way that story was written was that um, the his ex girlfriend, per that story, had also wanted the abortion. He paid for it. And then he sent her like a cute little get well card with like a steaming cup of coffee on the front. And it's, you know, I'm reading this and this is the big story that kind of could could derail his campaign. And my my immediate thought was just like, well, that's nice. That's kind <laughs> of thoughtful, you know. And now so we've had... Was it that, let me ask you this, mm -hmm. was it that I wasn't, I wasn't clear that they just both decided we don't well, want to have a kid or whether he was just, hey, I can't do this. I mean, obviously, I mean, given what we've heard about Walker in other contexts, he could maybe compel her. I mean, he's threatened other people with violence, but it, it, it at least as the story was presented, it was, it was just that was he made clear his opinion. But you're saying that in that case, she may, you know, may have gotten there on her own in any case. Yeah. Well, that was my impression from the first story. And now we've had kind of subsequent stories about the same woman. We've had uh, another story that she became pregnant again. I guess she was kind of in some on again, off again relationship with him. And the second time he again said, you know, I, you should get an abortion. Don't want this baby. And that time she was like, no, I'm going to have it. And, and has a 10 year old son now. But, um, and it, also in the subsequent reporting, it's come out that she had to kind of 
really push him to pay for the abortion and that his now we've had other reports that his child payments are based on a salary of I think like $140,000 when he's kind of a self-proclaimed multimillionaire. So all of that has made him look gross and has taken away that any positive kind of thoughts I had from the first story. But it was just so striking to me that we are, as you said, we got here in his campaign already having heard stories of him threatening to kill women, threatening to hurt women, um, you know, at least just, the accusation is holding a gun to his wife's head. Right. And that the, you know, the big story that could take down his career was none of that. We're not concerned about any of that. It was about him, you know, kind of willingly paying for an abortion, which has become muddied since. But part of the problem, I think, is that it's not at all clear that there's this story, right, like that they kind of just have to get ahead of in almost the, the Access Hollywood tape sense that I don't think anyone on either side would say this is good for Walker. Um, but, you know, you can go into damage control and, and blah, blah, blah. But the problem is with him, you just have absolutely no idea how much this is the tip of the iceberg, right? Because the last kind of storyline with him that unraveled in the same way was about how many children does he have? And it was just like every week a new child was popping up. And I don't think we have any reason to believe that this was the end of his interactions with abortion, you know, or that there weren't other tangential stories about his treatment of women. I mean, I think there is just a real sense of no, it seems that nobody really knows, you know, we, there was a story that came out that uh, the Herschel Walker camp knew about this abortion and was, I guess, just hoping it wouldn't come out. But I don't know after watching this campaign, if anyone's got a sense that, you know, you feel like, well, the campaign is confident that this is all the bad stuff. This is all the oppo that could possibly be out there. Well, one thing that came up in the immediate aftermath of this story that was originally uh, published by the Daily Beast and subsequently various publications have, have, you know, kind of independently reported it, is that when he was first thinking about running and, you know, when you're when you're first running for office, you meet with consultants and say, you know, you kind of decide who you're going to work with and they give you feedback about whether your race, you know, whether your um, run for office is credible. And when people would say, hey, you know, we've we've heard about the the stuff with the violence in the family or we've heard about their out of wedlock children that is you know now that's going to be hard for any candidate no one likes you know you're you're you are in essence going to hire someone and they're bringing up the most uncomfortable things in your background that's never going to be fun but apparently his response was to kind of flip out and say you know are you a you're a Democrat or you're with the oh, fake God. news or something like that? So, um, you know, like totally going off. And, that's, and that was a reason why a lot of people were didn't want to work with them. And a lot of like, you know, power brokers, uh, political uh, Republican political power brokers in Georgia were like, no way, man. You know, this is not going to work because certainly, you know, to your point, if you have a lot of baggage in your background, um, the people who are going to run your campaign are going to come to you and say, hey, we need to know all the, you know, we need to know the whole story because we can't be finding out new stuff week after week. And and we're, we're, you know, surfing Twitter to find out what the latest thing you did is, right? We can't do that. We need to, you know, we need to have the whole picture and, um, you know, know what to do. And, and clearly, I think, as we've seen, they did not have the whole picture. And actually, one of the things that happened in in the aftermath of this story is he fired his political director. Yeah. Now, at least the the supposed reason for this is that he was leaking to the media, you know, sort of implying that he leaked the story on his candidate. Now, that's 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 a little hard to believe. It's not impossible. You know, it's a it's a rough business, and sometimes if you are. Uh, if your candidacy is going down the drain, maybe the people who are working for you, the political professionals are kind of like, ah, you know, I'm, I got to think of the future. But another reason you think of the future is if you're a political consultant and people believe that you were leaking bad stories about your own candidate, you are dead professionally. No one's ever going to work with you again. So um, who knows what happened there? But it seemed the most likely scenario seemed to me is that if you're the political consultant and you're in that situation, 
you may get on the phone and say to a reporter, hey, you know, off the record, I mean, clearly this happened, but it's a long time ago. And, you know, you may you may talk, but to help your candidate, not to hurt your candidate. And, um, you know, in general, it certainly looked like, you know, just just what's that? What's that? Uh, you know, uh, old saying, you know, you can't you're mad. So you kick the dog. Right. You kind of and that's certainly what it what it seems like. I mean, it's not the political director that that that's the problem here. It's the candidate. Yeah. I mean, the thing here, though, is Walker has been a weird candidate. I mean, out the gate, you know, we knew about the violence stuff. He just has a lot of trouble. I don't know, stringing a sentence together. Like you watch him kind of perform in interviews and a lot of the times you're, you just, it's hard to tell what he's talking about, you know? And it's not like he's the first politician to do that. I remember the days of having to transcribe Trump speeches. It was absolute nightmare, but he's but always is, been that. But this is definitely different. It's with Trump, you're kind of like, okay, he seemed to be saying, you know, four things I could understand at once. And he was like mixing and matching. But Walker often what he's saying is incomprehensible. Right. I mean, and that has raised all kinds of speculation about his football career. And, you know, just putting that aside, though, that has been evident about him from the very beginning. And the polls have been incredibly close throughout. You know, I think it's a bit different than another race that we'll talk about. But in Pennsylvania, right, like Oz also was always kind of weird and a weird fit for this role, you know, like trying to turn himself into this MAGA guy when there's just such a long history of his relationship with the public to kind of work against him there. And for a long time, Fetterman was leading very handily. And, you know, it's it's tightening a bit now and, and we'll get into reasons for that. But that candidate weakness has always shown throughout the race. Whereas in Georgia, Walker's candidate weakness has not seemed to have the same effect on his palatability to Republican voters. And another piece of this that I'm interested to talk about is that Warnock has seemingly not used this at all, as far as I can tell. Like, I know that he was kind of directly served up a question about it and he just pivoted away a bit, which strikes me as weird. Didn't he have an ad that was, I thought he had an ad that replayed like, some of the testimony, not courtroom testimony, but maybe there was a TV special about the wife who allegedly had a gun held to her head and 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 that was wrapped into a TV commercial. So I think he's I think they've hit it pretty hard on that front. No, but I would I, say that I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I agree. They've used the violence against women thing. But I mean right. in, in terms of the abortion thing mm. specifically, there has not been much capitalizing on that from the Warnock camp. And you have to think that some kind of a calculation I, I, I think what more can they say? You know, Maybe. it's one of those things where I, I, I think the calculus there is, you know, that old line, don't interrupt your opponent when they're self-destructing kind right. of thing. That, that, that it's so out there and overwhelming and clear, you know, we're not getting into the mix can only conceivably make it, oh, you know, don't throw stones in glass houses and, you know, whoever's pure and all that kind of, you know, you you just nothing you can add. I mean, people in the state of Georgia are faced pretty are faced pretty clearly. uh, Okay, this one guy has at best a severe personality disorder. He's chronically violent. He has like, you know, a significant percentage of Gen Z population in Georgia is his offspring, apparently. Right. Um, And he and he kind of you know supports those children under duress at best and um he seems you know his own his own supporters kind of say well you know look he's not always clear but think how many concussions he had how would you be holding up right i mean that's the question is that you know are you okay with that and what can what can warnock possibly add well i mean the other thing that the walker story has just made abundantly clear which has always been known by people who follow the abortion space, is that there is a small, hardcore anti-abortion group that I, I really do think considers abortion to be murder. But that group 
is so much smaller than we think it is because all of the kind of surrounding Republicans and Republican stakeholders adopt that language and adopt that posture and paint themselves as similar, you know, kind of quote, warriors for the unborn children kind of thing. But the second, and I mean the second, this Walker story broke, all of that was out the window. And you had people saying, people grow, people change, you know, uh, let's not judge a man on his past mistakes. And it's like, you profess to believe that abortion is the same thing as killing a small child. And your reaction to the revelation that the candidate aided and abetted the murder of a small child is to say, well, that was 10 years ago. Things have changed. You know, it's I mean, it's indiscretion. Right. Of, and it's of the party that is so punitive always and always reflexively wants more policing and more punishment. And, you know, particularly for black men. And now it's adopting this like, hey, man, people change. OK. And it's just that has been evident for a long time. But I do think it's worth saying because all of the abortion bans and the the kind of like horrible things that women are going to have to suffer through without Dobbs, you know, giving birth to babies that have no chance of survival or, you know, having to choose between getting chemotherapy treatment and bringing a baby to term. Like that is all done under the cover of religious conviction and under the pretense of, well, we believe with our whole hearts that this is murder. So that suffering is worth it. And it's just it's it's good to know that the the majority of this universe does not actually believe that it's murder and does not actually hold that conviction and are still willing to put so many people through this suffering. Well, even even the point that most even many anti-abortion, you know, purported anti-abortion diehards say, well, you know, incest and rape, you know, come on, we can talk, right? That's that's different. I mean, no one's saying that like if you have like a toddler who's the product of rape you can like execute that kid. I mean, no one, that's, that's absurd, right? So I think that clearly there are very, are, are people who accept those exceptions clearly do not think it is truly the equivalent of murder. Th- that's clear because again, no one thinks that it, that, that like infanticide um, is, is okay. Um, but it's funny, in the Walker case, I have seen other people, mostly men, um, Republican, obviously, reacting to this, not not just saying the kind of like, hey, people change, you know, don't hold him, you know, responsible for the errors of his youth when he was 48 or whatever, um, of saying, hey, man, you know, abortion's bad, but he was in a bit of a jam, you know. The, totally. The, you know, don't don't if you were there, you don't know how you would have reacted. And I mean, kind of like <laughs> what other, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, to the extent that I mean, for the for the people who make that argument, what other circumstances give rise to having to have an abortion? It tends to it tends to come up when there's an unwanted pregnancy. Right. right? I mean, so <laughs> not totally. to, I mean, not making light of it. But I mean, again, that's what abortion is about. That if yes, it, that is a if you if you have an unwanted pregnancy, that is a tough situation. I mean, it's a tough situation people deal with all the time. Right. I mean, and I think whatever her name is, Dana Loesch or something, one of these, you know, an, an old NRA spokesperson who's now just kind of a far right agitator. But she said on her show, you know, I don't care how many skanks he's paid for an abortion, and it's it's like okay, so for you know the woman, it's kind of this like. Uh, in, impugning of her character but for but for walker for men it's just kind of like well it's sexual autonomy baby like sometimes you gotta do you gotta do what you gotta do when you're a big football star out here you know i mean at least it's being laid bare a bit even though you know my desire for things to be laid bare has been really pared back since the trump era but it's just political expediency and i wish that it would kind of permeate the way we talk about abortion more because this the veil of religious conviction just gives so much cover to these absolute inhumane policies. And it's always been like that. And that's why mainstream outlets won't even fact check anti-abortion lies because, well, that's what they believe. It's like, yeah, and a lot of people believe that black people are, are inferior to white people. That doesn't mean we have to give that position any kind of credence. Yeah, it's not that it's some positions are not acceptable in our politics. I mean, I, I, I will say this. I mean, look, I think the best you can say there is, is that it is a position to say 
he's the candidate who will vote to ban abortion. And it's a bummer that he's personally a hypocrite, but I want to ban abortion. So I'm going to vote for him. I don't care what he did himself. He is going to vote that way. Um, It does, uh, you you know, I mean, to the extent someone is willing to say that, like, okay, you know, I mean, but it it, it does sort of, uh, you know, I think that goes to the, you know, general point. Um, I don't know if you're if you're really if 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 you're if you are motivated by the by truly believing that a a fetus, you know, 10 weeks, 15 weeks, 20 weeks into into gestation is the equivalent of a small child. I don't think you're going to be saying, man, he can bang how many skanks he wants to, man, and have as many abortions. But I know how his Senate voted. I don't know. You just don't think that way. It, it is a it really goes to um, it goes to the thinking of those people who say this has nothing to do with thinking it's a life. This has to do with patriarchy, basically, and and restricting um women's autonomy and that whole package of things. And I think as we have discussed, it is not that for everyone. There is a percentage of the population that think it is a grave moral catastrophe to end, you know, to end a pregnancy. Um, and, you know, for people who believe that, okay, you know, I mean, that's, I don't agree with that, but that's what you believe. But you can certainly see in the political context that is not where the center of gravity is. It's something a little different. Yeah. So let's talk about another one of these kind of marquee races, uh, which is Pennsylvania, Fetterman, Oz. You know, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show, but the newest kind of development there is we had this period in the summer. Well, I guess back it up a little bit. So primary election day is when we found or the day before is when we found out that Fetterman had had the stroke. Election day was when he had the procedure or his first procedure. And then it was the summer, which is a time where typically politics is kind of slow. You know, I mean, campaigning is happening, but the quote unquote kind of normal disengaged voters are not really paying attention yet. And during that time, that's when the whole Fetterman meme campaign thing really took off. Their social media was just kind of a light and it was getting all this attention and breaking through to like morning shows and stuff. And then the summer ended and the Oz campaign just got increasingly nasty, you know, kind of for a while they were trying to do the, well, we have memes too. And then it was just like so bad that they pivoted to attacking him for the stroke, kind of making him seem weak and effeminate, and then also doing a little soft on crime thing on the at the same time. Um, and we've seen the polls tighten, you know, and I think part of that is that there's just been a lot of infusion of right wing money in the in that period. And that's why I think a lot of races have tightened across the board. And the Fetterman campaign has expected this race to get closer as it got nearer to Election Day. And now Fetterman's kind of coming out and doing a lot of interviews and more in person events. And as he's recovering from the stroke, he is struggling to auditorially process things. So for his interviews, he's and for their upcoming debate, there'll be closed captions so he can you know read the, the questions as they're coming. And of late, particularly today, we're recording on Wednesday, there has been so much kind of, you know, quote, mainstream media water carrying for the Oz campaign on this point, like a lot of will the voters accept someone who needs closed captioning during their interviews? And, you know, the the Washington Post editorial page being like, we need more medical transparency. And look, I think that could be a legitimate case to be made if like we didn't know how he was doing or we didn't know how serious the stroke was. But I think it's a little hard to make the argument that there hasn't been transparency from the Fetterman campaign about the stroke. They released the letter from his doctor kind of detailing how the, how we got there and, and the expectations for his recovery. Um, he's been kind of logging that recovery and much of it in person and, you know, is kind of letting people see him 
struggle to get words out sometimes. And he's actually made that kind of a campaign plank, you know, saying I like a lot of people haven't cared enough about my health. I didn't go to the doctor enough. Um, I'm getting better. You guys know what it's like to have a health scare. And now we have this kind of fraudster doctor who's mocking me for it. You know, do you want a doctor to make fun of, of your health struggles? But I don't know about you, but it's been kind of staggering to me to see how many of these reporters are kind of like ginning up the drama of, you know, that he needs closed captioning. And is that going to be disqualifying? And is he too weak for this Senate seat? You know, especially against the backdrop of we have two sitting senators who like just had strokes a few months ago. But also there are a lot of people who require closed captioning. You know, it, it just comes across as pretty ableist on top of everything else. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, let's think of a a counter scenario. Let's say uh, John Fetterman was deaf, you know, not because he had a stroke, he's just deaf, right? Or or whatever. Okay. I don't think that would be, I'm sure there would be some sort of sniping from the opposition, right? But kind of like, no one say like, oh, you're deaf, man. Can you cut it in this, you know, can you, are you up to the challenges of the Senate being deaf? You know, that would be a thing, but I don't think anybody would say with a straight face that kind of like, oh, oh, being deaf, man, you can't you can't be a senator. Like, of course they could. Having said that, it is clear he is not 100 percent. He has been affected by this stroke. There is there is no question about that. And I think that um, I agree with you that, you know, how much transparency do they want? I mean, I think there would be a strong transparency argument. And I've seen this happen with other campaigns in other contexts where the candidate is just not doing public appearances and, you know, doing, you know, it's all commercials and whatever. And you kind of say like, hey, we need to see the person like what's going on here. And that is not happening. And he's making a lot of public appearances and it's clear he's not 100 percent. Right. And 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 um I don't have a total sense of, you know, is he going to, is the medical expectation that in, in six months he'll be 99%? Is he never going to get past uh, 95%? Blah, 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 blah. But I think if you go back to the summer, Oz was just getting crushed. And he is a fairly ridiculous candidate. He's not from the state. He is a a kind of, you know, like, almost literally snake oil salesman, right? Who's made, you know, billions of dollars or billions of dollars, who has become an extremely wealthy man. Like I, I think in the, in, in the neighborhood of hundreds of millions of dollars um, from his TV shows and selling all sorts of like quack remedies and stuff like that. He's clearly not a Trump person, right? This is just, he wants to be in the Senate kind of, he's another celebrity. So Trump likes him. So he was getting crushed and he was not going to, you know, he's a Richie from another state pretending to be a Trump nationalist and and just kind of a joke. And I think they realized he was not going to out meme Fetterman. Fetterman's a popular guy in the state. And they realized, look, there's one way we're going to win this campaign. We are going to say he has brain damage and he cannot hack it as a senator. He's not up to the challenge. And they have gone a hundred percent in that direction after some early times when they were kind of like, oh, you know, we certainly are hope, you know, they kind of danced around it and then they have not danced around it. And, um, you know, and they even the kind of thing like, oh, let's have uh, let's have 38 debates and let's have it. Let's get uh, the brain teaser games from the LSAT and let's do those live. Right. I mean, just sort of like, you know, kind of piling it on. And I don't know. I mean, I do. Look, I think if you. I have tried to be realistic about this. If you step back and say, you know, no political, pre-existing political commitments, and you just say kind of like, all right, there's these two guys. This one guy had a stroke a few months ago, and he's he's still in recovery. Spe- you know, speaks a little haltingly sometimes, um, doesn't, you know, kind of process things he hears, blah, 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 blah. I think if you're just a voter who has, you know, no strong political commitments, you're going to say, like, okay, maybe he's not up to it. Maybe he's, you know, that that's just that is a not a surprising response. And I think that I think that has hurt him, hurt Fetterman. And um, I think the other thing that has hurt him that is more indirect is that the stroke has made it hard for him to go on the campaign trail and really stick it to Oz and really kind of come at him hard um, because of the stroke when he has public events, 
people are not really listening to what he's saying. They're looking and seeing, is he stumbling on his words? He is like being judged. Judged may be too strong a word. He's being evaluated to see whether how much this, the, the stroke has affected him. And what you know, how much that's fair or not, how much that matters, at a minimum, that takes the focus away from what he's saying. Right? Um, and so I think that it does seem like um the Fetterman campaign has made a decision over the last, you know, I don't know, two or three weeks that we kind of have to lean into this and sort of focus on his recovery story as something that people can relate to, right? As, you know, not necessarily relate to that they've had a stroke, but health crises happen and people have to handle them and, and how do they deal with them and so on and so forth. And I think that's the, I think that's the only way they can really approach this because they can't pretend that it's just, you know, I think, I, I don't, you know, we, part of the thing is those other senators they were just senatoring, right? They didn't have to go and give a lot of speeches. So they may have had some short-term impairment. We have no idea. Um, but that's kind of where it is. And I mean, I do have some real concerns about that race. And as I, as I, as I argued, uh, and certainly I'm not the only one who's ma made the argument uh, in a post a week or so ago, that is really the key thing. Because that's the one place where it had at least seemed that uh, Democrats had a pickup, you know, getting a seat that was a Republican seat that was kind of a, you know, almost locked in. And that means you can have, you know, Warnock lose and still hold and you can have uh, Cortez Masto lose and still hold. If they don't, then you kind of have to have some other really close races come through or else you lose the Senate. Well, okay. I think the thing is that watching Fetterman's appearances between when he had the stroke and now, the improvement is obvious and marked. Mm -hmm. So I do, th I think that is where it feels so gross to me to pretend that he's, you know, completely lost all kind of independent thought. Right. Um, but no, I hear you. I also, though, think in terms of the kind of waiting to see how he's talking thing, I think that comes into play with a lot of poor public speakers who are politicians. And like mm -hmm. the thing, Fetterman was not like an orator before the right. stroke. I mean, I sometimes get that feeling when I'm watching Biden speak, you know, because he is, you know, I don't think speaking has ever really been his strong yeah, He's like a clumsy speaker. He's, a, yeah. he's kind of a clumsy speaker. And he has, you know, it's been well documented at this point that kind of stutter uh, is largely, I would say, kind of invisible from his speech at this time, except when he kind of gets tired. But, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the polls have definitely tightened, you know, it, of course, the the trajectory kind of corresponds with Oz going negative, but I think perhaps more importantly corresponds with a money infusion into the yeah. race, uh, getting more eyeballs on it. But yeah, I mean, Pennsylvania was kind of thought to be the safer hold. And well, remember too, it's not a hold or a, it's a pick. Right. It's a pickup. And that's really the only kind of, at least how I have thought of all these races. It's, you know, like to pick up a seat in Wisconsin would be great to pick up a seat in in Ohio, um, maybe North Carolina, but Pennsylvania seemed like the one like that. We can get that. You know, you've got a got a popular in state politician. You've got some rando who who Trump came up with. So this is a this is this is going to happen, and that and that uncertainty is has has. Yeah, I mean the other just, in question. the other thing I would say is like when polls had Fetterman up eleven points. That always struck me as a little bit, I mean, come on, it's Pennsylvania, you know, yeah. but no, but I agree. And there's one more race I do want to talk about that you mentioned. Well, can I say one thing about, about, about this race? Yeah. One thing, I don't think this is most of it, but one thing that is, that is worth knowing, there is a democratic pack um, that has been doing a lot of polls all year and Across, in kind of all these races, if you look at like the averages, um, that it's, I don't know, Center Street or something. And and they may be awesome. I don't, you know, and and um, 
I'm certainly not saying they're not real polls, but they have consistently with lots of different uh, campaigns just had Democratic candidates like up crazy amounts. And, you know, they may be this year's Trafalgar in the sense that, you know, their results looked absurd. And then you see the final results and you say, well, <laughs> they were, you know, they were right. But I guess the, the, the reason I say this, you don't have to think they're good or bad. It's that in the summer, there were much less, there were much fewer, many fewer polls. And so their numbers had more influence on the averages. So some of what you're seeing is just that they are, there's a lot of other polls going on and those polls tend to be closer, but there's no question that the race has, the race has tightened. Yeah. So the other racing we want to talk about is in Nevada, where we have Catherine Cortez Masto and Adam Laxall, um, a race which has flown under the radar a bit compared to these other kind of marquee Senate races. Um, and there you have the incumbent who is kind of your, I would say, typical center lefty Democrat, the protege of Harry Reid. Kind of generic Democrat, basically. Yeah. yeah. And then Adam Laxalt himself is like kind of, I mean, he's nuts. I mean, he is a big lie, you know, election denier, but with kind of with a pedigree, you know, he was the attorney general, the Laxalt name is big in the state, you know, he's got... Senator, governor, family members, kind of the well, I think his grand his grandfather right, right. was the was the it was a longtime senator. Maybe he was also governor. He's this weird thing. Weird thing. He's also, I mean, uh, I want to make one hundred percent sure I'm right about this. He's also Pete Domenici's son, right? Does it? Do you know this? No. <laughs> okay. Um, well, okay. So, so Pete Domenici is a Republican senator from Arizona was a Republican. I believe he's passed away now. Um, and, you know, was there for 30 years, right? And uh, if <laughs> this portion of the episode may be, may be, uh, may be deleted if, 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 if it turns out I misremembered this, but I don't think I have. So Laxalt in the Reagan era, big time, you know, kind of very influential Republican senator, his daughter had a longtime affair with Pete Domenici, the senator from New Mexico. Not Arizona, New Mexico. Um, and so it's this weird, uh, you know, everybody's got a story and, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to judge. But anyway, that's his, that's his, uh, that's his story. That's his background. Yeah. So they are polling, I mean, you know, for, for context, kind of on 538 right now, they're amalgamation of all their stuff. Warnock is up four points, right? And we consider that race very, very close. Masto, like she's down like one point or half a point in, yeah. in I think the five thirty eight. Yeah, Laxalt is up by point seven of a point as of now. So I mean, it cannot get any closer than that. And I think it's interesting because I was trying to figure out why the Nevada race has seemed kind of less interesting to people than some of these others. And I think some part of it is just the characters are more boring. You know, you have Walker, who's nuts. You have Oz, who's nuts. You have Fetterman, who's this like folk hero. You know, the other, they've just got larger than life characters that Nevada doesn't. And I also think Nevada is just a really hard state to know. And I was thinking about this earlier, how I just feel that I don't have a good sense of the kind of idiosyncrasies of that state the way I feel I do other states. And I was kind of reading into it. And only 26% of people in Nevada are actually from there. Everyone else is transplants, which I just think has, that has a big effect, especially because in other states, I think the the movement has some correlation with its politics, right? Like you have a lot of old people retiring to Florida who are also bring and drawn by its conservatism there. And then right. you've got people, you've got all the young people kind of moving to like Denver, right? And like, and are drawn to crunchy politics and making Colorado bluer. But Nevada, it just seems different. Like there is a lot, there's kind of a libertarian streak. I think there's also somewhat of a political indifference streak. You know, I was looking at turnout numbers, even in 2020 in Nevada were lower than the national average, which is a bit weird because swing states usually have quite high turnout in, you know, presidential elections. So I think all of that makes it a hard state to know. And now that Harry Reid is dead, he was kind of 
the biggest, not just Democratic operative, but Democratic insight to how the right. state works and the different political actors. And he knew kind of who to stiff arm and, and yep. all that kind of stuff. So now it's just more of a hard to know entity. And so I think we're seeing also maybe a bit of a, a more grab baggy approach to campaigning, you know, like I know Masto has kind of leaned into her, uh, you know, her Mexican heritage this time and is trying to kind of scoop up the Latino voters in the state. And then she's also been running on abortion somewhat hard, which makes sense because Nevada is, you know, comparatively not not very religious. Um, so I think all of those factors kind of make it this hugely important race that has gotten so much less, you know, ink and airtime than these other important ones. Right. I mean, the way I think the way to see Nevada is that historically, and I mean, back 20, 30 years or so, Nevada was like a more conservative version of Idaho. You know, when I I grew up in Southern California and and sometimes we go on field trips, right, to to, uh, out out in the desert, you get out to Nevada. And I mean, (laughs) you know, you you get out there in the desert and you're going down the road and you see like, you know, Joe's compound with, with, you know, barbed wire and, you know, Nazi flags. And I mean, it, it it used to be, and I think outside of Las Vegas, it's still a pretty weird place. So you've got that Nevada and then you've got Las Vegas, which is now dominates the state. And that's where you get the kind of only 24% of the people are actually from Nevada. You know, probably overwhelmingly the population of, of Las Vegas is from other parts of the country. It is, you know, once you get down uh, beneath the hotel magnates, it's working class, in, in, not in the coded sense, but it's people working in the casinos. So unions are big there because of the uh, casinos. Um, you've got a very diverse population, a lot of Hispanics, a lot of kind of every group under the sun because it's just people coming in there to work, you know, in the casinos. The reason my assumptions have shifted there a bit is that the thing about, and a lot of this goes back to Harry Reid. It is a very, it's a swing state, but if you go back over the last 20 years or so, it's a swing state that Democrats seem to pull out over and over again. And so my kind of assumption is, you know, even if it's close, that's a place where Democrats just find a way to kind of pull it out, right? Um, And in in the same way that even though um, Ohio is basically a tie, I assume, I mean, it's kind of different. It's just a very Republican state. So I assume Vance is going to win, even though not counting Ryan out. I think he's running a fantastic campaign. Um, I've picked up just recently um, some people from in the state who know the state really well and who are not so confident that's going to happen. And another thing I noticed is that, and this is something that is kind of off the radar for the rest of the country, we know that gas prices have edged back up since that like three straight months when they were falling. But apart from the global oil situation, there have been a series of planned and unplanned um, refinery closures on the West Coast. And in California, gas is almost like $7 a gallon. It's insane. And that is, that is separate from the sort of the national thing. It has also affected Arizona, but to a lesser extent. And when I looked about a week ago, over the previous four weeks, the price of gas had gone up in Nevada by something like 80 cents a gallon over four weeks. And, you know, obviously there's no no Senate race in California. And if there were, it's a Democratic state. Um, It's gone up a bit in Arizona too, but it has seemed as clear as it can be from the polls that Mark Kelly's kind of had that race pretty in hand, right? So it doesn't seem to have affected him that much. But the the Nevada race was always pretty close. And it's just in that period of the last two or three weeks that there's been a number of polls that have actually had Laxalt ahead. You know, a point, two points, not much, but ahead. And that's a real, that's a problem. And I, and I think it's those... Um, those different, you know, those different factors. And again, that's why Pennsylvania is so important because, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that that Warnock's going to pull it out, right? Um, for a number of reasons, not just Walker being insane. Um, assuming he does, 
And if if Laxalt wins, you really need that set, that Pennsylvania Senate seat. Another thing I wonder if is happening in Nevada is so much of the industry there is based on the very sectors that were hit hardest during COVID, you know, tourism, hospitality, when that is the lifeblood of your state. That would be like the lifeblood of New York being, you know, the Broadway theater district. It's just it's got to be on another level, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because, I mean, you know, all the time voters say that the economy is their number one priority. There's nothing novel in that. But I do kind of wonder if the hangover in Nevada is just a little bit more acute than it is in other parts of the country. Well, and and one of it is overstated sometimes, but we know that in the last three or four years has been this big question of whether um, Hispanic voters are trending more in a Republican direction. And there are various potential reasons for that. But one reason that I think is real and I have seen referred to is that with COVID, you have, and this isn't just Hispanic voters, that you have a slice of working class minority voters who reacted to uh, Democrats, you know, very pro-public health, let's keep everybody safe um, approach as, you know, I want to be safe, but I have to make money. I have to support my family. I have to have a job. And that is, there is a slice of those populations that has been uh, you know, partly persuaded by the Republican screw masks, you know, screw your lockdown, screw your uh, uh, school closures, um, blah, 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 blah. And, and certainly it would make sense that, as you said, I mean, in, you know, tourism's a big thing in New York City, uh, Broadway's a big thing, but we've got, a, we've got a ton of other things going on. And in Vegas, it is the casinos. I mean, it is 100% the casinos. I mean, there's a few other things, but that totally dominates. And I mean, you know, what is one place, what is one thing that would be completely insane to do at the height of the pandemic? Go into a packed casino with with no windows, um, with, you know, tons of people breathing on you. I mean, obviously, that's totally crazy. So, yes, it, it the 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 fallout from the pandemic is, is, is real. And, and, you know, in, in my mind, um, 2020, uh, presidential 2020 in Nevada, uh, is yet another one of those cases where it was close. Democrats pulled it out, but not by a huge amount, not by a huge amount. It was close. Um, so, and it, and it's funny, like I was just looking at these, um, I was just looking at these numbers and there are four races that are in essence tied that, I mean, at the moment, I think it has shifted over the last few weeks where, you know, there were four races and three of them were Democrats up by one point. Now it's four races and three of them are Republicans up by one point. But that gives you a sense of, you know, there are some dramatically different outcomes that could happen in this race. You could, uh, you know, it'll it'll probably end up 50 or 51 either way, but not inconceivable. You, you get one side getting like 54 seats if everything breaks in one direction. Right. So I want to kind of round off with talking about a Supreme Court order that came down yesterday uh, that could kind of throw the Pennsylvania race into even more flux because, you know, we obviously got Oz Fetterman, but you also have a big race for governor there between AG Josh Shapiro and state senator Doug Mastriano, which Shapiro seems to have kind of, you know, well in hand, I think. Um, Mastriano is just so, so out there, you know, far right Christian nationalist, big lie into conspiracies, the whole the whole gamut. But there was a lingering uh, issue from the 2021, you know, Court of Common Pleas race where there was fighting over whether or not to count absentee ballots that were missing a date on the outer envelope, which is something that you have to do in Pennsylvania. You sign and date the outside envelope. Um, And, you know, didn't get a lot of attention at the time because it was a small Lehigh County race um, where the Republican ultimately, you know, 
uh, filed to have them not be counted, the undated envelopes, and the Democrats said we should count them. Um, And as it transpired, this Republican was leading until they decided to count the undated envelopes, and he ultimately lost by five votes, which, you know, sucks for him. But the Third Circuit of Appeals concluded that because incorrectly dated envelopes were not being tossed, it clearly can't matter that much, you know, and they found that that was a technicality that runs afoul of, you know, the Civil Rights Act, which requires, you know, requirements that have nothing to do with a voter's qualification to vote. That's immaterial. So that should not stop the vote from being counted. And that's what they found. And this was back in May. And we kind of saw a tangential uh, kind of sparring over this. Our listeners might remember when McCormick and Oz in the primary were still neck and neck there for a while. And then McCormick was all team, let's count the undated ballots. And Oz was like, no, let's not, because they thought that was in their best interest. But the drama kind of fizzled out then because McCormick fell too far behind and conceded and everything. But now, as of yesterday, the Supreme Court handed down an order just like a paragraph long, no writing from really anyone saying that they are vacating that Third Circuit decision to count the undated ballots, which that precedent would have kind of governed any skirmishes over this issue in the, you know, leading up to the election. So that's a big deal because that flings wide, you know, the doors to lawsuits because, you know, Republicans or Republican stakeholders are now going to kind of be interested and want to say, hey, we should preemptively not count these ballots because in 2020, Democratic voters in Pennsylvania voted almost three times as much with mail-in ballots than Republicans. So it's a pretty safe bet that such a lawsuit, you know, would help the Republican candidates on the ballot. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, we've talked a lot about this Supreme Court and, um, you know, more broadly, Aside from the just the corruption of this court, all the different things we know, it, it is a basic thing that, you know, we have a political process, right? We have elected officials who uh, decide these things and the courts are there when there is, you know, if there's some compelling interest, some some uh, real violation or potential violation of constitutional rights or a violation of relevant law, blah, 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 blah. But one of the things that you have seen with this court and people have accused um, other courts of doing this in the past, although frankly, it is worth noting that it has been decades and decades since there has been a liberal Supreme Court. This Supreme Court, just kind of anything that doesn't feel right to them, they're on it, right? (laughs) And like, you know, this is an example of, you know, this is is really by several different uh, factors, this is not something that kind of like, you know, with like Bush v. Gore, where they could say, hey, the, the country needs a decision and we, we have no choice but to step in and decide this. And if you don't like it, we're sorry, but it's thrown in our laps. This isn't thrown in their laps. They're, they're out there with like a, like a uh, scavenger hunt looking like, what can we do now? What can we do now? Ah, there's this thing. This was decided two years ago, but maybe not. Let's, 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 let's give it another look. Um, not to mention the fact that, as you say, it's not just that they're, um, it's not just that there's relevant law and precedent saying this is the right way to decide it, it's that that is the right way to decide it. You know, you you should not have... The basic point is, if the person is qualified to vote, and if the person's voting intention is clear, you shouldn't be coming up with technicalities why their vote doesn't count. That's a, that's a good way to operate, just in general. Um, you know, so this... Yeah, totally. And also, this was another case where Alito was kind of communicating through court filings to the people that would be interested in, uh, you know, filing lawsuits here. And because this the Republican in this Lehigh County race, you know, appealed that Third Circuit decision to the Supreme Court in an emergency motion. And they decided, you know, not to intervene. But Alito, Thomas and Gorsuch dissented. And Alito wrote you know, wink, wink, if anyone wants to, you know, apply for cert here, 
we should probably settle this question before the next election. So, you know, hip, hip, cheerio, get on our docket so we can take a whack at this, which has become just standard operating procedure for this court of, you know, just kind of communicating directly to these right wing stakeholders of like, you know, I'm I'm of a mind to decide this case right now. So if you just slip that in front of me, I can uh, make things go your way. Well, and also kind of like it's pretty late in this process, which I know is your original point. I mean, we're three weeks before the election. The other thing that makes me want to scream is that the, you know, it's called the Purcell principle, this idea that courts should, whenever possible, avoid changing election and voting procedures right before the election because there's such a high risk that you're going to confuse people and thereby disenfranchise people. And this is something Brett Kavanaugh in particular brings up all the time. And he brings up you know, the the kind of more stark example in my mind is when the Supreme Court decided to knock down a lower court order that the Alabama legislature had to draw new congressional maps that weren't so egregiously racially gerrymandered three months before the primary. Kavanaugh was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, we can't be given new maps three months before the primary. That's going to confuse people so much. And here we are three weeks before the election where he's like, yeah, no, that sounds good. You know, we'll we'll decide what ballots count. On the fly, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Right, right, right. No, and 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 you know, it it is it is the way of this court that uh, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. I'm not coming up with one. Um, but you've got you know you've got a grab bag of different theories uh, about why you should do this in this case, that in the other case, blah 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 blah. And you know you you have the new facts come before you and the approach pretty transparently with this court has increasingly been which of that bundle of principles and precedents will I pick out of the quiver to get me what I want? Ah, okay. Now it's not the Purcell principle or whatever. It's just that, uh, wow, we really can't have these undated outer envelopes because election integrity and, and, <laughs> right. and, and whatever. And that's just, you know, that is part and parcel of the corruption of this court. It is what it is. Yeah. I mean, and I just wanted to say real quick before we wrap up here, because I think we have been uh, Debbie Downers a bit this episode, <laughs> is just want to say every election feels so big now because it is so big and carries so much weight. But there was no way I don't think we were going to go into this election feeling like, you know what? The election denial deniers are toast. No problem. No worries. Like democracy is safe. No stress. That was just never going to happen. And even if you look back at years like, you know, maybe 2018, where it ended up being this big democratic wave, nobody knew that before Mm -hmm. it happened, Mm -hmm. you know, and you had the same amount of think pieces saying it's going to be a blue dribble as you did. It's going to be a blue tsunami. So I do think there's this... (laughs) you know, especially for people, you know, on the democratic side of things, this inclination to just feel nothing but abject doom and and certainty in the demise of, you know, the Republic and everyone who would help save it. And I would just like to inject the note of this was always going to be close. It was always going to feel neck and neck. Look at the states we're talking about. And so in that way, I don't know that what we're seeing is just a huge aberration from where things were always going to be at this point. Yeah. And and look, I think you can go even further. Parties lose midterm elections in the first midterm election of a a president. That is just, that is close to a law of American politics. Um, That is all the more the case when you have a very upended economy. Inflation's real. Costs have gone up a lot in the last two years. I think there is a very good case that, I mean, very good case. There's almost a, a definitive case. It's happening all over the world. That is basically the, the impact of COVID. It may have been, it may have been accelerated a bit by the, by the early 2021, uh, you know, COVID relief act, the Democrats pushed through, but basically there are all sorts of reasons why it should be a given that, that Democrats should lose control of both houses of Congress. And, it certainly still seems odds on that that will happen in the House, I think by less than than we thought even a couple months ago. And, you know, we have no idea, but the Democrats are in a considerably better place than really there was much reason to uh, expect 
And, um, you know, the other, there's this weird, um, I remember if you, if you go back to, if you go back to 2006, which was a massive wave election for the Democrats and people look back on it now and say, well, you know, second midterm of George W. Bush, he was very unpopular. The Iraq war had become very unpopular, blah, 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 blah. Um, there were various like, you know, Republican scandals, you know, corruption scandals in, 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 on Capitol Hill and blah, 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 blah. But I will tell you, through that election cycle, there was a consistent, I'm not sure consensus, but the sort of the insider opinion was always like, yep, you know, Democrats aren't going to pull it together. Uh, Republicans are still in this, blah, 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 blah. Even when the polls were sort of like, no, they're going to get crushed. There is a a weird negativity about democratic chances in elections that is really pretty pervasive in American media coverage. Now, one reason that it bites kind of hard right now is that that negativity has was vindicated in the last two presidential elections, certainly vindicated in 2016 and, you know, close call in 2020, blah, 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 blah. Um, I think part of that, well, there's, it's, 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 it's a topic for a whole other, um, a whole other episode, but that is not a new thing. It's a common thing. And to Kate's point, Democrats are in a considerably better position than there was any reason to think they would be in, um, for most of the last 12 months. And, uh, it's uncertain as it always is. And, um, we're just going to have to wait and see. And to the extent you can, you know, enjoy the excitement of, you know, kind of contributing and knocking doors and all that kind of stuff for the people who you support, you know, get out there and do it and sort of, you know, participate in the uh, spectacle and joy of political participation. And we'll, you know, we'll find out what's what the what the verdict is in a month. <laughs> we'll find out together. Yeah. Yeah, that we will. That we will. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.